Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on Dan's talk is Spencer Schneider, who is uh, a lawyer and uh, resident of East Hampton, who wrote a book which is coming out tomorrow called Manhattan Cult Story. It's an autobiographical book. It's going to be quite sensational, I think, because it is about a secret life he had for many years in Manhattan that uh, I guess most of his, most of his adult life. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, how you first got involved with this. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm happy to be here. I, I'm a, a Long Island guy. I grew up in Levittown and in Hewlett on the South Shore. I, um, uh, you know, went to um, uh, law school in Manhattan and um, became a corporate lawyer and worked, you know, one of those jobs where you work 60 hours a week doing, you know, um, work for um, big corporations. And when I was 29, I was approached by an acquaintance of mine, a man who I admired and respected, you know, um, uh, who um, invited me to go to a secret group that was that he was part of, and that it was a very special invitation, where we studied the uh, philosophers Gurdjieff and Espensky, which is uh, these Russian mystics, um, and it was very popular in the 30s and 40s. Had you heard of these guys? No, no, and I was a philosophy major. I had never heard of them. And your books, their books could only be bought in those kind of stores like where they sell crystals and they have like new age stuff and the music is, you know, like um, Indian music. And, you know, I never go into those stores, but I, I was very suspicious. Where was this and how many people were at that first meeting? Yeah. So the meeting was in Tribeca. Um, he really had to twist my arm to go. It was in some loft above a garment store in lower Broadway. And there were like 60 people there, but they were like me, you know, they were, you know, young professional people in suits and ties and, you know, a bunch of white people who looked like me basically. And, you know, I wasn't that impressed with it and I wasn't inclined to come back, but they did snag me because and it really was without my knowledge because I had a, a crisis. I lost my job. And um, they were very comforting. And I felt that this was at least a place I would hang out for a bit. So is this, you said to hang out, is how often did it meet? Oh, yeah. Well, hang out, meaning, you know, we had two meetings a week in the evenings. And we otherwise went about our daily lives. but. The whole thing was to keep it secret. They were very big on secrecy. And why I suppose, was that? Why, why would they want to do that? Well, I, 
what they told us was, look, it's an esoteric school. It's just for you. And it's, it's your own private life. And besides, you couldn't really explain it to people what it is. And, you know, this is very exclusive. We don't want word to get out about it. And um, it's important that you keep it to yourself. Otherwise, you won't really gain the benefits. Now, the whole idea was this sort of self-improvement. Who's running it? The woman, well, we didn't meet her for a year, um, but the, the actual leader's name was Sharon Gans. And uh, what do you mean you didn't meet her for a year? Was she had, she, so she wasn't at this first meeting or for a while? No, 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 we didn't. No, they had, she had other people who were um, like lieutenants to her leading. And uh, we were, we had no idea of who they were. We didn't know anybody's last names. There was no internet there. There was nothing, no way to look up anything about them. I mean, it was just like in 1989, there's no way to know anything. And, you know, eventually uh, Sharon Gans appeared. We didn't, weren't told of who she was, but if we had the internet, then we would have been able to find out that she was basically a washed up actress who'd been in one movie and been in some experimental theater in the sixties. And that she and her husband, whose name was Alex Horn, had left San Francisco in the late 70s because the San Francisco Chronicle had done an expose on them because they were accused of running a cult that abused children, that forced people to do labor. They had some allegations of rape, that they were uh, abusing people to do work for them on their behalf. But you didn't know this and couldn't know it. No way. I didn't know about their history until I was a good 18 years in. I had no idea. I just had no idea. And even if you looked on the internet, when it became readily available, I guess in the mid nineties, right? Later, I think. Yeah. Let's say around 9-11, around then, even if it was available, uh, even if I uh, looked it up, it would have been hard to find because it wasn't that developed. But eventually it came out. And, you know, I still stayed despite learning about their awareness because by learning about their history, because I was so dependent upon them. And that's really the nature of cults in general. I mean, you... It's like an abusive relationship, like a, uh, an abused spouse. You know, they, uh, their whole identity is based upon, uh, you know, being with this other person, the codependency issues and, and what. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I am, you know, I've spoken to many people. who An example of something that happened that would be, uh, explain that ex- more, more. Oh, you mean about like, like that would make you feel dependent and you have to do this. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, for one, um, they were very encouraging with me in starting my own practice, my own law practice, because I had lost my job in 89. And my practice did very well. I did exceptionally well. And I really attributed that to my connection with the group, this whole mystical idea of, and there were a lot, there are a lot of philosophical ideas, which I can't really get into now, but the Gertschiff and Spensky uh, 
you know, cosmology is something that we took upon ourselves. And so I felt that without this connection to, and we call this group school, that's all it was called. It had no name, it had no advertising, no signage, nothing. And nobody knew about this thing. I never told anybody and people kept it secret. But so one is I felt they were, there was a success element. I also felt that if I left, um, I would lose that connection because people were ostracized if they left. Um, secondly, I eventually got married to somebody in the group and it was, uh, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, an arranged marriage. And the understanding was that if you left the group, you know, your relationships, including a marriage or business relationships would be come to an end because people were so, uh, follow, you know, so obedient to Sharon. I, w- I was asking about a, a, like a specific thing she might do or say that would make you feel you had to do something and it was okay, or you didn't realize it wasn't okay? Oh, I mean, there were so many things. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I could think of like the first one off the top of my head was, is, um, you know, she would frequently tell spouses to leave other spouses. And she would say, look, this other spouse is no good for you. Um, they're hurting your possibilities. You're not going to be able to improve your life because they're holding you back. And sometimes, you know, uh, often people would do that. People would uh, give up their kids for adoption. What, what would she say? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm your teacher. I know you better than you know yourself. This is what you need to do. And people would object. And if you objected, she would berate people and humiliate them there'd be this sort of group think and peer pressure on people to toe the line. I, 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 I mean, there were some outrageous, uh, did she, uh, what did she do out that was outrageous to you that you realize now it was? Well, towards the end, it got even more outrageous, um, towards me. I mean, at one point, my then wife and I were trying, um, to have a baby and, and, we ultimately did a, you know, a young, healthy boy who's now 23, but she was a little older, you know, over 40. And Sharon uh, felt that, you know, uh, that it would, it would be hard for her to get pregnant and maybe the child would um, not develop right and, and whatnot. So she encouraged me to impregnate my ex-wife's 19 year old daughter and that the uh, suggesting that the daughter have carry a baby and that my then wife and I would raise the child. So this is basically incest, a request that I, a suggestion that I, you know, did not obviously follow. One point when my wife and I did get divorced and many couples in the group got divorced, they were not really good relationships. She, um, try to, uh, you know, meddle in the divorce, you know, affect child custody. We had, um, as there was an article in the New York Post that brought up, they were very um, focused on one aspect of the group, which was um, we did boxing. And it was kind of like a fight club. You know, we met every Friday secretly, you know, 20 of us guys, and we get in a boxing ring. And these guys are, you know, like me, they're lawyers, you know, they're 
they're not, you know, <laughs> not really physical kind of stuff. And we put on the helmets and we'd fight at Gleason's gym. And a lot of us got hurt. I had a broken nose, I had a concussion, but they encouraged us not to go to the doctor. Right? They would say, just tough it out. You know, this sort of macho thing, you know, there's this macho nonsense going on with uh, a lot of people in the United States now. I think you probably notice, you know, this sort of being tough. This group was very, uh, very much espoused that, you know. Let me think of, oh, I'll tell you another outrageous thing that Sharon did was um, she believed uh, that gay people could be converted. And she was all in favor of, of her own brand of conversion, which was asking gay men to marry women. And she was successful in doing that a number of times, including having a, a gay man marry her daughter. Wow. What was her attraction? What, what brought her to everybody? You must have admired her in some way. It was not right, but nevertheless. Right. It's, it, it's so hard to, uh, to pin that down to one thing. But I would say a lot of it had to do with this sort of groupthink and peer pressure. I mean, we were in the group for a, a year before we met her. And we very much liked the leaders who ran the group. But they were so admirable. They admired her so much. So we sort of picked off of that. The other thing is she could be extremely kind. I mean, no one could make you feel better than she did. There was something about her, even though I thought she was nuts, she just had a way of making you feel so good about yourself. And, uh, you know, people revered her. So if she showed personal attention to you, you were like, oh, you know, that's like Buddha, you know, it was like Jesus Christ or Moses, whatever. Let me ask you a slightly different. Did you always meet in the same place? And were there always in the large 50, 60 people? How was it arranged? Was it like a classroom or was it a living room? What was it like? It was a rented law. Well, we met uh, over the years. We met in three different spaces, all in Manhattan, originally in Tribeca, then Chelsea, then the uh, Garment Center in office spaces, really. And it was basically a, a large room with homemade built um, risers with plastic chairs that were placed on it. And the teachers or leaders of the group, they called themselves teachers because we called it school, sat in the front of the room uh, in director chairs. Sharon, however, had a pedestal that was set up for her. <laughs> and she had a lazy boy that was set up for her. And she sort of reclined and pontificated from her lazy boy. Wow. And, you know, she would have, you know, her vodka there, her cigarettes, her, you know, finger foods, everything would be set up for her. And people would, you know, serve her throughout the evening. You know, if she threw a napkin down, somebody would come up and get it. I, I How long were you with in the group altogether? How many years? 23. That's amazing. Yeah. How did it, how did it end? It ended when, you know, Sharon really meddled in my uh, marriage ending. And that was a big turnoff. 
she also uh, meddled in uh, my business affairs. Did she um, meet with anybody that you knew or was it always with you as a, an agent, so to speak? No, I mean, we, I was in the group, uh, in the classes, so I always saw her in classes, but I was also, we also spoke on the phone. I had a very close relationship with her. I mean, I, she basically used me as her chauffeur. And, you know, I spoke to her on the phone at least once a week. Uh, you know, I drove her to and from class. You know. She didn't talk to your wife. She didn't talk to your business people. Oh, both. My business people were in the cult. And so was my wife. I see. I so know. she had c- complete control over my life. Oh. And really, the big thing that set it off was that I met someone, a woman, and, uh, you know, I told her about the group. I just was so unhappy there. And I told her about it. And she encouraged me to leave. And I was, I was, the other thing was I was having a nervous breakdown. I mean, I was having. What year was this? 2012. Oh, so you've, you've taken 10 years to decide to write the book. I read she's passed on. Yes. That was made more possible for you to think of doing that. Well, I, I was, I wrote, I started writing it before she passed away. Um, and I got the book contract shortly after she passed away. But she know um, you were writing about her? I think she did um, because I, um, I had a blog and I still do have a blog, which is highly critical of her. You know, nobody, I'm the first survivor really to be um, not anonymous and speak about her. I mean, there are a few other people online who talk about it, but mine is the first book about it. Most people are, keep their mouths shut, even people who left. And there've been thousands of people in the group and, and people are ashamed to talk about it and afraid. Well, if 60 met in one room, how would there be a thousand altogether? She must have met every day with different groups. Well, she had at at any given time, there were a few hundred people in the group because she had different classes and she had groups in Boston and she had one in Copenhagen. And I think she had about three or four classes in New York. So there were a few hundred people at any given time, but people came and went. Mm -hmm. And this went on since, you know, the early 80s, it started in New York. So it's been 40 years, you know. So was there any press on this at the end? Is it, it's gone now, of course, she's like, no, no, it's continuing. It's yeah. continuing. Yeah, she died and she gave her uh, ownership in the group that, you know, there's a corporate group that, you know, gets all of the money. Um, she did gave that turn over money to her too. Oh yeah, that's why she did this. That that's why she did this. This this was all about money. Uh, people paid in cash. Uh, people paid uh, tuitions of three to five hundred dollars a month, and I uh, estimate that she um, took in about a million dollars a year in cash. Mm-hmm. She lived in uh, an eight million dollar apartment in the Plaza Hotel, which is where she passed away. How old was she when she died? She was uh, 86. She's buried in here in the Hamptons. She's buried off her uh, Springs fireplace in the, spr- in the Springs. She, has, she had a home in Bridgehampton, which was built by members of the cult. And she had homes in uh, Montana. Where, where did she have a home out here? 
in Bridge in the hills in Bridgehampton Hills on uh, what's the name of the street? Blank. Yes, there's a blank lane. Blank lane. Yeah. Yep, it's off of uh, Scuttle Hole, I think. Correct. Deep. Yeah, anywhere it is. Yeah, and it's 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 like halfway up from Scuttle Hole. It's behind trees there, and it's right on the farm. Did she have a family and have a husband at all, or was she single and on her own? She had been married twice, and she got divorced. Uh, I think in the um, in the mid seventies, and then she got remarried to a guy named Alex Horn, who introduced her to the who was already a cult leader and introduced her to all this philosophy, and the two of them ran the cult. His name was Alex Horn. Um, and he passed away in 2008. He's also buried out here. And she has two children from her, her first husband, and they're estranged from her. They were estranged from her. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. think? She yeah. also, I should say, they also, she lived in Montauk for a while. Where? Her and her husband had a home in uh, off of Old Montauk Highway in the president section. You know the president names. Yes, Grant. Yeah, one of those streets, and they had an A-frame. Sure. And I I found this because uh, I did a lot of research on them. They were busted for growing pot. I don't know, sometime in the seventies, and there's a piece about them in the uh, in the Star. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a docket, you know, the docket. Yeah. They were growing pot there. And yeah. he, the husband, his name was Ezra Kulko, who was a dentist. He took the rap. I think he paid some fine. And that was that. But nothing happened to her. Yeah. Uh, looking back on it, do you think it uh, was a good idea that you got involved with this, even though it was pretty awful? I mean, nothing good came of it except that uh, I have a terrific son. And I guess I guess you could say that I had I made some friends who uh, once they left and I was gone, you know, we we have some friendships. I did enjoy the first years in it but there's nothing that I can take away from that, that of any good. So that's one of the reasons I was compelled to write the book was to sort of take this experience. So I could um, put it behind, I guess, in some way. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there's a personal element, but I really did want to um, expose them because they deserve to be exposed. And I, I feel that the story can be helpful to other people. Yeah in so many ways, you know, for, you know, about resilience and getting your life back and, you know, your dignity, uh, you know, there's a lot of groupthink these days. I think when somebody goes through a crisis, they can be vulnerable to, they reach out for help from people and they can be vulnerable and thinking, in fact, some things can help, you know, joining a, a group. I had a, tough year one year and I, I joined a commune out in Quag. And I, I treasure that year. I only was there for about a year and uh, made one, some wonderful friends, but it was nothing like what you went through. I think if it had been a, a year or two and it lacked all of the 
you know, um, trappings of a cult, meaning that the leader was benevolent and good meaning. That's who mine was. Yeah. Yeah. Yours sounds like it was. I mean, it was a commune. It's a fantastic, great thing to have a community. There's nothing like a community. We all yearn for that. But, you know, it's so easily, you can be easily taken advantage, especially in an environment that's all encompassing, as you know. I mean, people are t- tricked all the time, but yeah. yeah. Well, it's quite a story, and I look forward to seeing the book and perhaps meeting you at the author's night. Yeah. See- and uh, we're and and uh, you've been coming out to the Hamptons for ten or twelve years after being here with your family and all that. So you're quite familiar with us. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm talking really to Spencer Schneider and his new book, Manhattan Cult Story. Bye bye. Take care.